The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are the light of the world. You are uh, our creator, our maker, our redeemer, both the just and the justifier. Uh, we thank you uh, that you have given us your word and the examples of these churches uh, and your dealings with them that we might uh, know what it looks like to be a vibrant church. And so we ask God now that you would open your words. Uh, to our heart and our hearts, to your words. We might know you, uh, love you, serve you, and be the church you've created us to be. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So, uh, we are looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation, uh, chapters 2 and 3. We are in the third week. Uh, We are doing that because we want to be a beacon of Christian vitality in Mandarin and in the Diocese of Florida. I think that is, uh, that is the call, that is the vision, and uh, what God wants for us, not to be better than anybody else, I've said that before, um, but to help everyone, every church, be the best that they can be. So a couple of weeks ago we looked at the church in Ephesus, a church that held to right doctrine and was commended for that in the face of false teaching, by, commended by Jesus but which had wandered from the love of the Lord, right? And presumably also the love of their neighbor. So they they had truth, but they did not have love. So we we should be a uh, church both of truth and love, a church of truth and grace. Last week we looked at Smyrna, a church that had endured harsh persecution, and they were going to continue to endure harsh persecution. And so we learn that we should be a church committed, uh, so committed to Christ that we too are ready to endure uh, persecution. This week, we are going to continue to head north along the uh, coast coastline of modern-day Turkey. And we're going to look at the church in the ancient city of Pergamum. Pergamum uh, is modern-day uh, Bergama. It starts with a B now, not a, not a P. Um, and it is... I, it looked like I don't know, ten or fifteen miles inland, um, but it's uh, it's not a not a real bustling city right now. It was an important city then. It was a uh, a Roman administrative center uh, then, and um, and so and I looked you know when I as I have been doing the last couple of weeks I looked in, in Google Maps and typed in churches in Bergama, and I didn't see any. Uh, there's several mosques. One ancient ruin of a basilica, but I don't think I couldn't find at least any active uh, churches. So this, um, let me read it. Uh, let me read it, and then we'll we'll take a look. So again, if you have a red letter Bible, these are, these are in red letters. This is the words of Jesus. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter two, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. 
so also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Kind of mysterious, isn't it? Well, it begins, as always, with a, uh, a letter uh, to the angel of the church. Uh, that is perhaps the pastor, perhaps the sort of essence of the church. The, maybe it's an angel, a sort of guardian angel who looks over the church. Um, we don't think about that very often in our present context. It would be wonderful if we had our, you know, the angel of the church of our Savior watching over us. If the pastor is the angel, y'all are in big trouble. Um, we have Amy, you do have Amy. This is to the pastor's wife. That's right. Thank you, Jim. Yes, that's right. That's in the commentary. That is very insightful and helpful. Thank you. And happy Valentine's. Okay. Um, so as uh, in, in each, <laughs> that's really good. So, um, so in each of the letters to the churches, uh, the, um, it gives a description of, of the, uh, that, that harkens back to chapter 1, which was the description of Jesus in this sort of apocalyptic language. Remember Jesus in, in chapter 1, he says he has hair white as wool and his eyes are a flame of fire. And he has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Um, and which, you know, it's very interesting, and I did not do this on purpose at all, but the uh, readings that I selected for our sermon series in church is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, which says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, And uh, it is uh, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So that what she's coming out of Jesus' mouth is, this, is not an actual sword, but the Word of God. Uh, it is His own words that are piercing, penetrating, uh, cutting, uh, cutting productively. Um, uh, Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians, St. Paul also talks about the Word of God as a sword. He, in the, in the um, not the fruit of the Spirit, the, uh, the what is it? Honey, the um, the the put on the gear. What is it? Armor, <laughs> armor of God. Armor of God. <laughs> Thank you. Gracious, the gear. That's why the angel of the church of our Savior shall it be ever be so. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Um. So, again, uh, several places in Scripture we have the Word of God uh, as described as a sword, and it is so here, coming from the mouth of Jesus, the words of Him who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's his, these are Jesus' words. Jesus' words to the church, Jesus' words in Scripture to us, um, telling us how to live. And He's speaking directly to the church in Pergamum, and he says, um, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, Pergamum, and I feel like I'm saying this every week, um, Pergamum was a center of pagan 
religion. Lots of temples, pagan temples there in Pergamum. Um, and it had a temple for emperor worship and other pagan temples, including Zeus, Athena, Dionysius. And now I'm, not, I'm no expert in, um, in worship, uh, pagan worship um, in, in those times. But I, I saw something in a commentary that I've never seen before, never noticed before anyway, that, um, that in Pergamum, Zeus was referred to as Zeus Soter. And um, Soter in Greek is the word Savior. Uh, Greek, uh, so Zeus Savior. And there was another, there was another one called something Soter. And, um, and you, so you can imagine the proclamation of another Savior, the Savior Jesus Christ, as the one and only Savior. Uh, not, not just one among um, many, but, but the Savior. That would have been quite uh, offensive. And here we have, again, that offense of the gospel uh, being the sword of the Spirit. That it is being this uh, sword, this cutting away the, the, um, uh, the things that are harmful to us. The, uh, the old, old divines would have said killing the old man. Uh, which, they didn't mean killing an old man, but they meant um, the, the thing in us which was before Christ. The thing that kept us, our natural selves, uh, as opposed to the new man. Um, and, and so um, we're cutting. The, the word is designed to cut away uh, even even things that we cling to dearly, which have been like the uh, idolatry in ancient times. Um, so it did not. It would not have gone unnoticed, and would have been, I think, very offensive. That um, or perhaps repulsive that Christians uh, only acknowledge one Savior from a God who was supreme and authoritative. Uh, uh, and maybe even challenge the existence of Zeus or Athena. Um, and he, and uh, as I said, Pergamon was a Ro- Roman administrative center, and the, um, according to this commentary, the proconsul, the sort of governor of Pergamon, had unusual powers of um, they could they could determine without a, a without a like a jury uh, whether someone lived or died, and so. Um, it was a. It would have been a harsh culture. So if someone decided not to worship the emperor, and the proconsul had you know, had some bad eggs that morning, it was. It you know, they they could be killed for for their their decision. And I just think this is important because we should never think that we have it worse than it's ever been before, in terms of our culture. Um, it may be worse than you had it before, but it's not worse than it's ever been before uh, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, particularly where we live. I mean, I do think we live in a post-Christian culture, which is to say that the culture we live in isn't... You can't, you can't just assume that someone has Christianity as their moral framework anymore. Uh, particularly younger folks, they've just not been exposed to it. They've not been taken that way. Um, it, it is. It is not, not been raised that way or taken to church. Uh, they, we live in a culture where uh, morality is is very fluid, uh, as which is not described, not uh, new to you, and it is lamentable. But it is, I would say, post-Christian. Uh, but I mean, you think about this culture that was, in a sense, well, definitely pre-Christian. You know, they they, they were um, they they were. Incredible. They were, it was the same. It was just human nature. It was. It was selfish. It was violent. It was. Um, 
and I would say further along than, than we are uh, in our culture, maybe not in some cultures where it's still very dangerous to be, to be uh, a Christian. But the culture has uh, certainly been violently, uh, violent against Christianity before, and, and in fact, the, um, the church flourishes, typically, uh, in the midst of violent persecution. We, we don't want violent persecution, but a lot of times we see the church flourishing there. Uh, as someone said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I believe that was the um, church father Polycarp uh, who said that. You can look it up. I don't know. But, um, you know, I, I, the, the story in church history that I thought about uh, enduring persecution and, and, in fact, persecution flourishing uh, the church was from the English Reformation. Uh, so you know that Thomas Cramer, under Henry VIII, uh, they, they separated from the Church of Rome, but Henry VIII really wanted to remain Catholic. I mean, he, was, he stayed Catholic. Um, and it was after Henry died and Edward VI became the, um, became the king of England that Thomas Cramer was really able to implement some of his reforms. That's when the... Uh, 1549 and then the 1552 prayer books came out and uh, and they started saying the mass uh, as a service in English and um, implementing some of this grace by faith rather than uh, by works and just lots of um, demystification of of the worship taking them away further and further from Roman doctrine and Roman practice well Edward was a young king, and he died uh, early, and Mary Tudor came to the throne, and, uh, and she never stopped being Catholic, and she implemented some very, very harsh um, punishment for those who were, uh, who were Reformation people. And so Bishop Hugh Latimer and Bishop Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake in Oxford, uh, and uh, there is a, a famous story where as they were being, um, as the flames were coming up, Hugh Latimer said to Nicholas Ridley as they were being burned by the stake on behalf of M- Mary Tudor, Play the man, Master Ridley, and be of good cheer, for we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Amen. And they died with courage. And he should have said, until the 1970s, you know, in England. So, <laughs> um, but the, uh, so, so the, the, I mean, the martyrs are the, are the seed of the church. The church flourishes under, under persecution. And, and Jesus is commending the church in Pergamum because they have, uh, they have maintained their faith. That you dwell where Satan's throne is, which I think would have been the, um, the emperor worship, the seat of uh, that Roman government um, there in that region. Yet you hold fast my name, you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed uh, among you where Satan dwells. But, he says, but I have a few things against you. And this is where you know, the article, you're reading the paper about the church, and you think, oh no, but when Jesus says, yeah, well... I've got this against you. You kind of brace yourself. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, 
what we're doing now is we're hearkening back. We're, uh, he's, he's recalling, remember I said Revelation is very Old Testament. We're calling back to the story in Numbers 22 to 24. And the prophet or the oracle, uh, Balaam, and you, you've heard of Balaam's ass, right? Balaam's, which is now translated uh, delicately as Balaam's donkey. And, um, and Balaam uh, was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, because there's this giant nomadic nation wanting to come through his land. And they said, oh, we don't, we don't mean any harm. And he, being the you know, sort of king to fight for his, his land, says, forget it. You're not coming through here. And so he hires Balaam. He says, I want you to curse this people, these Israelites, who are coming through. And Balaam says, fine, I'll, I'll do my best, but I'm going to talk to God, and I'm, I cannot do what God says I cannot do. He said, fine, that, that, that'll be no problem, because you need, he, God, obviously God wants to curse his people. So Balaam hears from the Lord. The Lord says, these are my people. You're going to bless them. Balak gets upset. I hired you to curse them. You blessed them. He says, I told you I can't do what the Lord uh, says I can't do. He says, well, maybe if you go on this mountain over here, you can curse them. So ba- Balaam says, okay, let's go. And he goes up. And, of course, the Lord says, no, you have to bless them, not curse them. And it happens a third time. And, and then they go their separate ways. And there's, at this point, there's really nothing where Balaam has led the people of Israel into any sort of idolatry or sexual immorality. We might be able to fault Balaam for not telling Balak to take a hike after the first time, right? He keeps going with him. He keeps taking his money. He keeps saying, well, I'll see. I'll I'll see. You know, like he's kind of in it for himself. But he never issues a curse. So the last verse of, of chapter 24, Balaam and Balak kind of go their separate ways, and Balak is feeling like he's been gypped out of a bunch of his money. Chapter 25 of Numbers begins like this. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Baal, of course, is the uh, base of the false gods worshipped all around that region. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And nothing in that directly relates Israel's bad behavior to Balaam. And yet, in chapter 31 of Numbers, we hear that the seduction of Israel was Balaam's doing. And Balaam actually gets killed for it as they're sort of cleansing uh, themselves. And, and it really seems to be this story where Balaam is accused really of seducing as if it was his idea to, okay, I can't curse them, but what you should do is put a bunch of good-looking women in front of them and, and they're going to they're gonna depart from the Lord. Well, that tends to work. You know, I don't know if... Uh, um, and so I, he never says it in, in, in the Scripture, but he's clearly blamed for it. And it was really pretty intensely... Um, this is a part of the conscience of Israel throughout their history. It gets brought up a number of times throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and once in the New Testament, it's brought up again in Deuteronomy, in the book of Joshua, in the book of Nehemiah, and by the prophet Micah. All refer back to Balaam and Balak and this, um, 
this idea of seduction and sexuality as, as pulling uh, the people of God away from God. And Second Peter uh, also talks about it in the New Testament as well. And it seems that this, if you look through over the course of Scripture, that the teaching of Balaam, which we can then apply to the Revelation letter, to Pergamum, that the teaching of Balaam means that they're not that the people of God are not concerned to have their sexuality brought under the lordship of Christ. I don't really love talking about sexuality, but it's it's right here, and I'm going to say that this is a huge problem today in the Church of Christ. And I don't know what it is about sexuality, but we hate being sanctified in this area. We, are, we find it repugnant as a people. To have, we're happy to love the Lord. We're happy to serve the poor. We're happy to do lots of things. But to have our sexuality threatened or our whims tampered with or um, brought under the Lordship of Christ is, um, is something that we really are, um, that really offends us. And, um, and so, I, what I want to bring up is that 68% of Christian men, according to polls that I could find online anyway, including over 50% of pastors, use pornography. 68% of Christian men uh, use pornography. That, sh- that should not be a surprise. Uh, the, the percentage goes up as the age goes down. In fact, 33% of women, and this is not, it didn't specify Christian women, 33% of women 25 and under search for pornography at least once a month. In fact, a theologian that I knew um, in another iteration of my life was an incredible writer, writing on a national level, um, sought after as a speaker, working on a book about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus came out that he was deeply, deeply, deeply involved in um, prostitution, pornography, all orgies, just all sorts, just this terrible, terrible double lifestyle. Um, had dragged his wife into it. It's just, just really abusive. It's just a really terrible. And he, he, he was sick. Like it, 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 it messed with his mind. And I think that pornography is a cancer, uh, and uh, it is, in fact, a, penetra- a penetrating sword uh, of Satan, which needs the sword of the Spirit to come against it. We can live double lives, um, w- but, but men, we have the capacity to live double lives, is what I'm trying to say. Men and women of Christian integrity uh, seek to bring every aspect of their lives under the Lordship Christ. Um, and the reason is not because uh, we are fundamentally moral people. The reason is because Christ is just so much greater than everything that competes for our heart. Um, Christ is the Lord. He is the Redeemer. He is the Lover. He is the Friend. And pornography distorts our reality, uh, our, our view of reality. Uh, of what 
uh, relationships are like. What is true about people, especially about women. What is true about sex? It's just it's not real, obviously. It seems obvious, but, but the thing about porn is it never has a headache, right? It's always available. It's always there. It is. That's true. I'll just let that sit for a while, I guess. I, I just... It's shocking. And, and, you know, like, I hope you don't want to, but you can find it's in your pocket. Yes. You know, and so it's always around. There are 42 million, according to the study, there are 42 million pornography websites and 370 million pages of pornography on the Internet. At one a day, you, you know, you can, you can fill your life up. So, um, the... Uh, God is not a God to be appeased by clean living. He is a God who desires relationship, uh, who is worthy of worship, adoration, emulation, and honor in every aspect of our lives. And every aspect of our lives is to be brought under the Lordship of Christ, including our sexuality. And so, um, I mean, there's more to say uh, about that, but that's, that's what is on my heart this morning. Pornography. I mean, you know, I think, okay, 68% of Christian men um, are uh, using pornography. And we've got a bunch of Christian men walking into church on Sunday. It makes me think we might need to have a conversation about pornography uh, in our, in our, among the men in our church. So let's have, a, let's have a meeting about pornography, see how many guys show up <laughs> to that. Hey, honey, I'm going to go. I, it's for my brother. That's for my brother in Christ. I'm just going to support him. Honey, I'm not, it's not a problem uh, for me. It's tough. I mean, it really, it's tough. It's tough. Let me say this. There's that 33% of women. There's that 33% of women as well. Um, those conversations I find, or at least I'm more comfortable having those as gender specific. But... Um, yeah, the angel of the church of uh, Church of Our Savior would, would be happy to. Um, so, I just want to hold up. And, it, you know, the thing, of, the thing about it is it's not just sexuality, is it? I mean, there are other things. I mean, the, the other issue in, in, uh, that, that this letter brings up around the teaching of Balaam is, is eating food offered to idols. Well, we don't really have that problem, right? But we have what we do have is a problem of loving God more than we love other things. Uh, loving, sorry, loving other things more than we love God, which is idolatry. And so, um, you know, Saint Paul says, "I, I, I got to tell you, there are no idols. Like they're just figments. There's, there's no reality. And so, a food, food offered to one is fine, unless you believe in idols, and then you can't eat it. Like if it is a stumbling block to you, you should not eat it." Paul says. So. There is some latitude with what is good and right for Christians and how they understand these things. Like, you can have a lot of money, and yet your heart is disciplined and right with God. And you can have hardly any money, but have money as a desperate idol in your life. Or, you can have lots of money, and feel like it is, you have to have it in order to be whole. Well, then it's an idol. 
and, and we, our hearts, I mean, I believe John Calvin when he said our hearts are idol factories. Like we can make an idol out of anything. We can make an idol out of not having idols, right? So um, sex becomes an idol. You know what? So does power. Uh, so does food. So does I'm better than you. So does I'm a victim. Like there's all sorts of ways to make uh, idols out of just debate about everything. So, knowledge. what's that? Knowledge. Knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, right? Love builds up. So we are uh, we are uh, certainly available to when we make ourselves available to sin, we can lead double lives without even knowing it. Like we, the thing about my friend who was the theologian who got so deep into that, he totally justified everything in his mind. He could not see that it was that big of a deal. Despite the fact that they were now $100,000 in debt. From prostitutes. Yeah, but, I mean, come on. So, Jesus says, repent. Therefore, repent. In other words, Bring it. What repentance here means is to acknowledge that we have areas of our lives that are not under the lordship of Christ, particularly our sexuality and our idolatry, and we need to bring them, so we offer them before the Lord. Bring them under the lordship of Christ. Lay them at the foot of the cross. Remember, uh, we talked about casting our crowns before the Lord. And that's what repentance is. And he says, if not, I will, I will come to you soon. This is not the second coming. This is the judgment of Christ. I'll come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And what I think that means is in some way, he's going to bring his word to bear uh, in a, in a, with active judgment. Um, it seems, the grammar of it seems that it is against those who are in, uh, perhaps those who are in the church, uh, who are um, have great faith but have this double life. So it's not just those who don't believe in Christ, it's those who believe in Christ and yet haven't um, brought them uh, brought some part of their life under the Lordship of Christ. Well, I think there's probably all of us can say there's part of our life that needs to be more under the Lordship of Christ. So... So rather than the Lord bringing His Word to bear in some way upon us, maybe we just need to reopen the Word for ourselves and submit ourselves to it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's what all the letters say. That to the one who conquers, that is the one who does this, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, I think... Well, let me ask you. I decided not to ask you about pornography. I was just going to talk about that. But just let me ask you about this. What, do you, what, is, what is he talking about? The hidden manna? White stone? What, what do you make of that? Like, I see some furrowed brows. What, what do you think? I will give to you some of the hidden manna and a white stone. Any guesses on that? No man knoweth. Saving he that receives it. Yep. <coughs> I was thinking no about actually the Moses stuff, the manna. The manna. And then the stones. 
Okay. Oh, yeah, the stone. Okay. So the, uh, I think thinking of Moses and the manna is, is right because Jesus said he's the bread of life. And remember they said Moses gave us the manna. He said, no, actually God gave you the manna and I'm the bread of life. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And where does Jesus dwell now? In you. It's in a sense, hidden in your hearts. And so I think that um, those who uh, repent will have this uh, blessing of knowledge that Jesus is hidden in their hearts. The Word is hidden in their hearts. He is... Um, he himself is the manna. The stone that the builders rejected. So the, in, in that culture, the, um, the stone, the white stone was given to uh, victors of um, athletic competitions and also given to those who were acquitted uh, in, in uh, jury trials. So that, they got a black stone if they were in trouble and they got a white stone if they were off the hook. So you're given a white stone, you're off the hook. And you're given the... Um, and you're the victor. And so, uh, and there's a name, you get a new name written on it. When God gives someone a new name, it's, it's uh, you know, for, like Jacob becomes, Jacob means he cheats. And he gives a new name, Israel, he wrestles with God. Right? So he's, it's a name that uh, Abram is, is, becomes the, becomes Abraham, the father of many nations. And, um, and so there's, there's lots of, indica- when someone gets a new name, uh, in Scripture, by God, it's always drawing them to Himself, and there's an intimacy about this, right? There's it's only known to the one who gets it, like it's just between you and me. Like there's just this intimacy that's promised. So, we learned that we should be a church of grace and truth. We learned that we should be resilient in the face of persecution. I think that this is saying that we should be a church that is constantly putting ourselves under the Lordship of Christ in every area of our lives. And expecting blessing to come from that. Alright, so we've got a couple minutes. Any questions, thoughts? Want to talk about porn some more? Or, um, <laughs> all right, pray that the Lord will draw you in and bring every aspect of your life under His Lordship. Amen? Amen. All right.